Blog Talk Radio. Hello? Hi, Doctor. Is it okay now? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. No matter where you're listening, around the world, this is Sedona Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Helena Steinhornstein. And I got on just in the nick of time. We had a few little technical problems here. I am uh, in Sweden, in Stockholm, Sweden. And I have uh, an incredible type of weather in Sweden. It's probably 50 degrees. It's very strange for this time of the year. It's 9 o'clock p.m. in Stockholm, Sweden. We call it 2100 hours. And it's uh, just three hours before 24 o'clock, which is midnight. And I have a guest with me, a wonderful guest, um, as I understand it. It's Steve Riles. And understand Steve is on the other line. Are you there, Steve? I'm right here. Can you hear? uh, Are you okay now for the reception this time? I think so. Oh, that's wonderful, because we had a few problems. You know, we couldn't quite, um, we had an echo and so on, but I hope everything should be okay now. So, um, Steve, you are, uh, I'm so happy, by the way, that you're here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Well, thank you. And uh, you have written a book, Drunk with Wonder, Awakening to the God Within. And I love that title. Tell me, uh, how did you get that title? Well, uh, it really comes from Rumi and Hafez, who were mystical Sufi poets who lived, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and they spoke with such passion about not simply being uh, aware of God or um, one with God, but intoxicated with God, drunk with God. This whole really passionate kind of sense of wonder and awe and amazement. I've always felt that one of the most sincere forms of worship or prayer that we can offer is to be absolutely in wonder with every moment of our lives. That's beautifully said. And, uh, of course, uh, in many ways one could take it a different way because you had a life before, uh, I mean in this lifetime, not in an earlier lifetime, the way I understand it, where you actually were intoxicated and you were on drugs and you were um, homeless. And you managed to work yourself out of that and get back to going to college and you took three university degrees, which I think sounds wonderful. And uh, you you finished that with honors and more than that, I believe. And then you co-founded various businesses and made some money. And I believe you lost it, but you made it back again. And you became a poet and you write poetry. And uh, you became a music critic and you write articles and you do a lot of stuff. And you're also a Reiki master, is that so? Yes. So this is a variety, you know, this is quite... Uh, a spectrum of of, of um, abilities, I would say. Uh, so you really show the godness uh, ability with yourself. Um, where are you right now, Steve? Where am I? I yes. am in the physically. Mount- I'm physically in the mountains of Mendocino County, California, about twenty, what we call air miles or direct miles from the ocean. And I sit up on uh, my wife's 40 acres that she's had for 33 years. And on a clear day, uh, we can see a strip of ocean way out to the west. And we just look out on range of mountains that go all the way to the ocean. We don't see any homes or people. It's very, very rural. We live off the grid here. So we're operating on solar power right now. That's fantastic. What a difference from myself sitting here with all these electric lights. It's pitch dark, and, of course, you have, it's like noon, I believe, in California right now. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm three hours from from midnight. (laughs) So um, uh, tell me about this lifestyle. You know, I'm in a way fascinated how you could, because you came from a good family, didn't you? You had oh, sure. an organized life. You came from a house and family and everything else, and then you ended up 
homeless. How did that happen? Well, it was an organized family in the sense that uh, have a mom and dad and four younger brothers. But my dad had been, uh, you know, 19 years old when he found himself on the front lines uh, in the spring of 1945 in Germany. Oh. And... Uh, he had been raised during the Depression, the American Depression, and uh, he just, his family, neither neither side of my family, really had any particular skills around dealing with their emotions or the emotions of their children in what I would call healthy or responsible ways. So the way my father was taught to make sure their children did what they wanted them to do was by using force, by using hitting, slapping, beating, using a strap, uh, emotional humiliation, public humiliation, shame. Uh, you know, there was really very little that was too, what I would call vicious or cruel, to yeah. use to make sure that we towed the line. And uh, yeah. as a very sensitive, I, I mean, I knew I was going to be a writer when I was six years old, and a very, very sensitive soul, and... I didn't take kindly to that. So uh, I went from kind of a sullen, quiet acceptance, uh, reluctant acceptance of their of their rule to open rebellion. And in the 60s, that looked like taking off and getting, for me, getting lost in drugs in particular. I didn't really start getting lost in alcohol until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So I wound up in the streets of Haight-Ashbury, during the famous, uh, just before and during the famous Summer of Love. Yeah. And uh, I guess yeah. I, you know, I kind of looking back on it now, it's 40 years ago, I I think that I, that I looked cool and tough the more dangerous things that I did. Back then, you know, smoking was very cool. Some places, I guess it still is. Uh, not so much in California anymore. And so I was a cigarette smoker, and I was a pot smoker, and I started shooting mostly speed, although I shot some LSD also, and just kind of took it as far as I could go until I nearly killed myself. And that was one of those opportunities that uh, I don't know whether all of us have, but certainly I know many do, to really look at what I was doing in a very stark way and decide do I want to choose life or do I want to just let go of this lifetime yeah but there was something that happened there and I read from the introduction of your book about your friend Carl of course I think that's a fascinating little story in itself Uh, yes I that was really what happened I've been thinking about that a lot because it was just the 40th anniversary of that experience was this past May 1st uh, what happened was I was in a what was called a crash pad, uh, just a bunch of hippies getting together and scraping up enough money, panhandling or dealing You actually with were a hippie with long hair and dressed that that's way, it. were you? That's it, uh-huh. all of it. And uh, and uh, and anyhow, I was just we were just everybody in the house was doing a lot of speed, and I had just done a, a bunch, shot a bunch of speed, and really could barely move. It's amazing how I could convince myself that I was having a good time. I mean, I was really, my heart was beating probably 200 beats a minute, and I had what's called yeah. tunnel vision, and I couldn't even stand up. Uh, but It's amazing oh boy, what the body good, can handle, yeah. Yeah, it's, especially when you're young. Yes. I uh, imagine it would kill me immediately now. But uh, anyhow, just after I had that hit of speed, Carl walked in, and he, we weren't living near each, particularly near each other anymore, and he had come out to basically do an intervention to... Uh, because he loved me and cared about me and wanted me to live, and we had really grown apart since I had gone off into this really negative lifestyle. And yeah. so he kind of got angry with me. Now we would call it an intervention. We'd call it a you know mm-hmm. tough love. We didn't have yeah. those words back then particularly. And but he just got really angry and and told me that he he thought that I really really needed to take a look at myself. And he did something that, of course, I don't recommend that people do. Uh, you know, the old caveat, don't try this at home, kids. Um, but he gave me a large quantity of LSD. And had you had it before or you oh, were used yeah, LSD? Hundreds, hundreds of times. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I'd had it many, many times. And we yeah. had it many times together and had some really great, great experiences Oh, really? Together. So he was, but he lived at home and he had a more organized life, though. 
Yeah, he did was he? going to college, and yeah, yeah. he was mm-hmm. he had it more together than I did. And uh, anyhow, I got really high on that LSD, and I wound up having an out of body experience. And it was my first one that I was aware of that I remember. Yeah. And I found myself kind of bumping along the ceiling like a balloon. And I, oh, this is interesting. And I remembered Carl saying that I was that I looked like death warmed over. I was emaciated and filthy and um, just, you know, hadn't eaten and my teeth were rotting. It was it was a pretty bad scene. I'd just be real upfront about it. And so I, it occurred to me to roll, kind of, kind of roll this consciousness over and look down at myself. And I saw absolute clarity, just exactly what Carl had been telling me. Yeah. And so I had a very deep revelation in that moment, a transformative experience, life transformation, which resulted in my, when I came down from that experience, uh, I got up the next morning. I called my parents. They came and got me. I moved back home immediately. I started seeing a psychiatrist. I, I never shot speed again. And I started moving on with my life. And I was I got back in touch with Carl. We were starting to pal around again, have fun. And then only about three weeks after this happened, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. I find that absolutely amazing. It almost seems like his purpose in life was to put you back on track again. That's the way I I read it, you know. It was his purpose to help you because you are here, it seems, in the world to help people, to help this world raise their consciousness. I don't know if you've seen it (laughs) and looked at it that way, but that was my first feeling about you. And when I, you know, I didn't have time to read your book because it came as an e-book, and it's, you know, I'm traveling now, so it's a little bit hard to right. to read e-books, and uh, so I went through the pages here and that, and I'm absolutely fascinated by the book, and I was fascinated already by the introduction, what you had to say, and when I read this story about Carl, it was like, no, his purpose was to really help you out of this because you know we all come here for a purpose don't we which you know yes uh, and that's what you're writing about and, well, you know uh, i have to say that that was it, it, i appreciate what you're saying and you know the part of me that you know struggles with with self-worth kind of looks at that and goes whoa that's he of course he had many other purposes yeah but in, in you know and had a family and and all of their experiences and all that happened to their his family yeah. as a result of his life and death. But you know, you make a really interesting point because his helping me, his uh, teaching, if you will, uh, didn't stop with his physical body dying because he showed up. Well, he's shown up many times over the years in my dreams. Oh, really? But he showed That's fantastic. up. Fantastic. It, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Uh, he yeah, and he started that summer. I mean, within a month or so after his uh-huh. passing. I was taking it very, very hard, uh, and with again, with no emotional literacy, no, no tools with how to feel all these feelings. I was just mostly told to suck it up, you know, just to be tough, you know, man up, you know, those kinds of sayings. And and so uh, I, I was really hurting inside, but didn't know how to express it. And one of the things that happened was I discovered the joy of a cold beer and how to, how that really did a great job of numbing things out. But the other piece was it was kind of on a parallel track was that he started showing up in my dreams. And he showed up in, in his lifetime. You know, we were only 18. Uh, and he was still kind of struggling to, he had kind of baby cheeks and didn't really have much of a beard yet. And I, I could grow a really good beard already, and we used to laugh about that. And yeah. In the dream, he showed up with a full beard. Oh, really? And wow. he told me things like, you know, I don't, you know, don't, don't worry about me. Things are great. I'm on another assignment. Things, you know, I'm moving along but just know I love you and that I'm here for you and that, um, you know, feel your feelings, but, you know, don't, don't worry about me. Don't, don't, you don't need to, cause yeah, I'm, don't I'm really, in good, I'm really in good shape. Look at me. I'm right here. Yeah. I'm still, and so that opened me up to a level of thinking about spirit and thinking about a very much larger perspective than I had, than I had before. Yeah. And, and please let me let me presence this for you because 
This is 1968. In early April, Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Mm-hmm. Then on May 1st, my best friend died. Yeah. And then on was about June 4th, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So in less than a 60-day period, two people that were huge in my young life, uh, King and, and Kennedy, and then my best friend, all died. Yeah, that's amazing. And it was a very intense shock to the system. Yeah, I understand that. So... So there, there you go. Uh, it's um, this life is amazing, and I'm thinking about Carlo. That somehow you were tied together, not only in the lifetime but also all along. And uh, many of us are tied together through our lives and through after the life, also without our knowing why. But I see these connections all the time, and uh, uh-huh. that we somehow have a purpose with each other. Of course, to to work on you was not his only purpose in life, but it was part of his many purposes to help you and make you do what you're going to do now with the world. What is the uh, purpose of your book? What do you feel is the main purpose of your book? Why did you write it, and how did you put it together? It's well written. Thank you, thank you. Well, I am a you know I, I am a writer, and I did get a lot, and I had a lot of help. I had some friends that gave me a great deal of, of support. I wrote the book because, having been a, someone who's consumed a lot of self-help and spirituality books over the decades, and gone to dozens and dozens of workshops, a very typical pattern for a seeker, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I finally decided that there was something missing, from a lot of the teachings. And it's a very specific piece where I I synthesized some of what I learned from kind of Western shamanism along with some of the Eastern teachings. And it very much relates to the idea of the ego. Now, there's a teaching that the ego, the personality, is somehow in the way at the best and at the worst is actively trying to sabotage us. And I feel that the ego is is doing the best, the personality, uh, the pearl of personality is doing the best that it can given what it knows and that it isn't evil or malignant. It's just scared. And that saying that we need to get rid of it doesn't make it less afraid. And it's very, very skilled at survival. Yeah. So my feeling was that I wanted to enlist it as an ally rather than try to make it wrong for being who it was. Besides, I have a particular spiritual tradition coming out of the science of mind, for example, that teaches that God is all there is and that God does not make mistakes ever. So we're not, if, if, if you take that idea, then we're not a mistake, and our egos are not a mistake. And every experience we've had in our lives is never a mistake. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's a learning experience, isn't it? Yes, it's an opportunity. Yes. Uh, and, and, it's, uh, and we're at choice, we have a choice, about what we make that mean. And, uh, you know, many of us are taught in this culture to, to be victims, and mm-hmm. make uh, responsibility for our experience someone else's or yeah. something else's. You know, if it wasn't for the government, if it wasn't for religion, if it wasn't for those other political people over there, or if it wasn't for that country, or, you know, fill in the blank. It's always somebody else's, our experience is somebody else's fault. Then we get to be the helpless victim, and we don't have to change or take responsibility. Yeah, well, so, of course, this is what I teach now, that you are responsible. It's up to me what's going to be, you know. That's it. Yeah. I think every teacher who really thinks this through and really gets it on a deep level gets the same thing, the same teaching that, that you have and that I have. The book came about because I felt that there was a piece missing, and the piece is, you know, this kind of narrow casting in a way, very much fine-tuning. But I felt that helping people understand what's going on with our emotions from a physiological perspective, the, the, the triune brain of the human being, um, where our earliest and most primal emotions map down to in the amygdala, 
and so on. These kind, this kind of information really helped me to understand myself better, and through understanding, I was able to develop more compassion. And Are you understanding yourself now? Do you feel? I do. Now, today? Yes. That's good. Because that's how we understand the world, isn't it? We start with ourselves. Oh, I don't see how we can do it any other way. No. It's an inside job. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I read also here the beginning of your first chapter. I see there are many poems in your book, by the way. Yes. yes. And uh, so poetry seems to be very, very close to your heart. Very close. I started writing poetry when I was 15, and uh, I've written it ever since. I've written thousands of poems. And poetry for me has always been able to capture nuances and, in, in essence, feelings, tones, heart tones that I've never been able to communicate more effectively in any other way. I pro- you probably are very, very right in that. You can put the nuances and the feelings probably much more in a piece of poetry than in, in an article, for instance. And I think you can do it much more concisely. Yes, you can. And uh, here, of course, it's not poetry, but uh, this quote that you had at the beginning of the first chapter, I think it's so wonderfully put. There is only one spectacle grander than the sea that is the sky there is one spectacle grander than the sky that is the interior of the soul victor hugo the french author and philosopher mm-hmm. in the 1800s and you put that so well you know and he put that so well it was a, and that describes your book too doesn't it i'd like to think so um, i certainly had many Many positive comments uh, since I since I brought it out. So it was really a labor of love. I, I imagined the idea of reality, if you will, the isness. You know, the one side of that coin is re- is science, what we call the rational rational mind or rational yeah. thought, trying to understand uh, our experience from that perspective. And then, of course, the other side of the coin is spirituality and. I often see people feeling as though they have to make a choice between focusing or basing their experience on one side of that coin or the other. And my intent with Drunk With Wonder was actually to pick the coin up and be aware of both sides of the coin and be aware that both sides of the coin have great value, that you really don't have a coin if you only have one side. Well, this is true. You know, in the truth, there is absolutely everything. Otherwise, there is no truth. And that's why uh, in in Drunk with Wonder, I talked about some of the different uh, physics experiments and awareness that comes out of a quantum entanglement and so on, because I feel that uh, what's going on in quantum physics is really explaining in some amazing ways spiritual truths that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. That's absolutely true. And people who don't understand either one, they don't understand that this is so, but this is exactly the way it is. And scientists in quantum science also, they are very, very open to spirituality. And the old scientists like Newton and and Einstein, they were very, very open to, to, to science. How do you feel people are treating spirituality today in California, for instance? Well, there's a very vibrant, uh, I call it an alternative culture, really. Um, We have festivals and concerts and magazines and even newspapers and, uh, of course, Internet sites and some pretty rigorous stuff going on based in California. You, I imagine you're aware of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for example. Oh, yes, absolutely. And some of the really fine work that's being done to bridge the gap. The, the, I use the word gap. It's really just an apparent gap. I don't think it's a real gap. It's just a story we've developed that, that you know, since uh, the Reformation. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's really 
from my perspective, it doesn't do much more than um, propagate the notion that that there is duality. And I'm really interested in non-dual awareness. And I see and, and talk about in Drunk with Wonder that what we see as duality is is what we chose to co-create as as God in form in order so that we could tell each other stories. And I think based on observation, uh, God as us likes nothing more or nothing so much as a really good story. And that somewhere in that story is usually something about a small band of brothers and sisters against overwhelming odds. Because yeah. we keep telling ourselves that story over and over and over again. And what part of my intention with writing this book was was to see if I could support people in standing up in, metaphorically and stepping out of these stories that we've learned, being aware that we are not any of our stories, that there's an ever-present, unconditionally loving awareness that is always beating our hearts and is a silent, still, small voice maybe uh, inside that is available at any time to support us in making healthier and more responsible choices. So I see, for example, in California, I'm seeing many people choosing to buy and drive Prius hybrids, which get much better mileage, choosing mass transit, choosing to cut down their carbon footprint in various ways, choosing to go solar. It's very good. Can you make the rest of the country follow that? You know, well, here of course, I can't, really, make them, yes. I can't make them do anything. Um, no, that's I feel that's that choice, I can, but... You know, we can lead by example. That's all we've got. You know, we... Um, I, I very much uh, try to live by Gandhi's we must be the change we wish to see in the world. Yes, we, must we are the be change. It. We must be it, not just talk about it, and I do talk about it in the book, but I also do my level best to live it. So the book was written and edited off the grid in you know using solar power, renewable resources. I, I used recycled paper. I used soy ink. I, I do my best... And I'm human. I make mistakes, uh, like we all do. But and I could do better. But I do my best to to walk my talk. Yeah. How do you use soy ink? Do you actually use an old ink pen, or do you fill your pen with ink? Actually, with in this ink? in this particular case, what I'm referring to specifically is when you print. When the the printer uh, printed the book, you know, and we had the book printed, he used a soy-based ink. In other words, a non-petroleum-based ink kind of like a biofuel rather than a petroleum-based fuel. I didn't know there was such a thing. There absolutely is, yeah, yeah just like a biofuel. And that's great. I mean, through a program like this, now so many more people know that this kind of ink, and many more can ask for it also. Yeah, in it, it, Europe, of course, they go much further than in most American states in the environmental, uh, you know, oh, uh, I'm, how you I'm pain, Oh, I am painfully aware of how much farther ahead Europe is in so many ways than so and much of America. in Sweden here, you know, it's amazing when you get to the airport, you come out to the airport, you see cabs where it says we are environment friendly or we are you know one of those hybrids cars and they say this and mark this and of course uh, many people prefer to take these particular cabs and they're all over they have green leaves on them <laughs> i love it <laughs> that, that makes my heart sing to hear things yes. like that <laughs> so people are trying much much harder particularly in the scandinavian countries and you they know, do a good job with it and the truth is, in, in the so-called United States, there are states like California that are on another planet relative to some of the other states in the country. With, with Probably in comparison to Florida, they do nothing there, you know. And in all the big, tall buildings in Miami, you see the garbage. They throw everything together in the big buildings and in the street and everything. There is no separation of anything. No, we do... Uh, we're such careful recyclers that my wife and I only contribute about one 32-gallon garbage can to uh, the landfill a month. Wow, that's pretty good. Every, you know, we have a garden yeah. and we recycle uh, or yeah. compost everything else, and we it's a it's a 
it's a point of pride, really. To, to you know, we can do it. It's not hard. We 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 attempt to lovingly, you know, kid with people and you know, say, hey, you know, I noticed you have a toilet paper tube in your trash how about recycling that yeah this getting really getting out there with it so that uh we're walking our talk and we really are mindful of coming generations Uh, my wife and i now have a two and a half year old granddaughter and even though we've been on this program for years and years and years it brings it home that much more clearly and poignantly when we have this little tiny amazing being running around on the planet and we multiply that amazing loving light by millions and millions and millions and just be compassionate about leaving the world cleaner and more conscious and more loving than we found it yeah yeah it's wonderful once you be part of life and you have grandchildren i think you look at the preservation of the planet in a different way, too. You yeah. really want to leave something for them, and you wonder how is their world going to look like. I have that feeling myself when I look at my grandchildren, and I say, well, I hope we can leave them something, because it doesn't look too good right now if you start to think about the the, the weather changes. And I'm here, you know, as I said before, and uh, in Sweden, uh, this strange whether we had we haven't seen the sky really for for over a week for heaven's sakes and have you been uh, having rain uh, what do you say have you been having rain we're having little rain but it not even that gets through properly it's like this odd little drizzle that is hardly a rain and uh, it's been going on and on and on and um, it's like almost a curse <laughs> On, on our world here. But when I've been in Miami, lived there, and I've never seen so many overcast days this year if I see, as I've seen, you know, ever before. It's, it's there very, very much so. I haven't seen it. So it must mean something, and I tell people about it, and they just don't seem to react. Well, I, I can imagine it many people feeling somewhat helpless because it's such a big thing. But I, there's no doubt in my own mind, I've lived on the west coast of of America, uh, Washington, and then California, since I was five years old. So when I was a kid growing up in Seattle, it was always raining and very fall-like and down in the 50s yeah, by September. Like here now, yes. Mm-hmm. And now, um, you know, Seattle's often doesn't get near the rain it used to this early in the year, and it, temperatures are up in the upper 70s. And when I, in oh, so maybe early, there is a switch. We get their weather and they get ours. <laughs> it could be. I, you know, we've, had, yeah. uh, we've had quite hot weather here this summer. It really feels like global warming, and mm-hmm. it was a very dry, record dry spring, so our pond is very low, and we had... Uh, so we had in right on the first day of uh, summer we had uh, I don't know whether it made it the news over there but we had hundreds and hundreds of fires start up by lightning in Northern California in one day yeah. over yeah. a thousand wow. and four of them were right out in front of us where we could see them from our front yard yeah. and uh, it was very very scary for uh, two weeks and mm-hmm. unbelievably smoky it was just kind of a little bit like Armageddon and so. Oh. I tell you, one thing it does is it keeps bringing home the incredible, precious, moment-by-moment experience of life because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And it's so easy to get lost in fear, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, and, and we are so fear-based, and that's also what we, what you mentioned in your work at that, uh, you know, to get over the fear. And... Um, uh, what is what is your passion, Steve? What is, what what really turns you on about uh, your life? What you can well, do there, with a, your a life? Number, a, there really are a number of things. One that is really uh, front and center for me, and, and has been for thirteen and a half years now, is that I I work with an organization, volunteer mostly with an organization called Challenge Day, and uh, they go into high schools and middle schools all over the United States and Canada and present full-day programs 
to up to 100 students and 20 or 30 adult volunteers at a time on uh, oppression and on sustainability and on uh, treating each other with respect and dignity and finding ways, giving them tools to feel their emotions and let, which are really energy, that we are taught to block and that, that blocked energy, blocked emotions are really the source of most of our disease and stress. And so we teach them healthy and responsible ways to feel their feelings so that they wow. can discharge their feelings in that way rather than by, you know, you, you've heard of the term cutting, uh, where, yeah. where kids, especially girls, will cut themselves uh, in ritualistic and uh, fashions and an attempt mm-hmm. to control or bulimia, yeah. like, oh, you know, binging and purging yes. food or yeah. gangs or... Uh, other kinds of violence, drugs and alcohol, driving fast, teasing and bullying others, all those kinds of ways uh, where we create separation and isolation. And so we're teaching how to uh, love and support and respect each other. I was just, I just uh, volunteered. Wow, that's different... very, very advanced. Of, uh, and I think it's fun, fantastic. That's very good that you can do that. So that's so, my passion. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's your passion. And, of course, you get results from that, too. Very concrete results, uh, and it's a very visceral kind of thing. I just uh, I volunteered at three different schools, well, one school on two days and, and another school on the third day just this last week. So uh, it is my passion to see young people who are so obviously hurting, feeling isolated and alone. You can see it in their faces, and they're yeah. depressed kind of walking around. And you see some of those kids come into this prop- program in the morning, and then you see them again in the afternoon, and they're laughing and running around and skipping, and they That's have fantastic. been That's utterly transformed. In yes. I mean, I've seen bullies. I saw this this last week. I saw a bully, someone who was labeled as a bully, mm-hmm. a big guy, stand up in front of all his friends, in front of 100 people, in front of teachers, parents, publicly apologize to someone he'd been bullying and ask the person to come up and and forgive him and give him a hug. That's so beautiful. Uh, how old were these people? Teenagers, uh, high schoolers. Teenage. Really? 15, 15 to 18, 14 to 18. Wow. I hope you can increase the size of that program so you can bring it all over the place. That well, that's the dream. So I mean, the, yeah. uh, this year, uh, this school year that just started, uh, Challenge Day is on track to reach probably 100,000 youth in the course of the school year. So that's I happen to be good friends, uh, blessed with the friendship of the founders and uh, Rich and Yvonne. And, you know, I've been doing challenge days with them since they were doing it out of their house, and it was just them. Yeah. Now they've got a, you know, a large office and 25 people on staff and 30 different leaders doing this and uh, going all I over like the place. It. I like to see it all over the world. I'd like to see it in Europe. I would like it to be spread out all over well, I think it's that somebody so has important. started a circle of change in, mm-hmm. in Denmark, I think, and just starting to get it over there. And we've been to, they've been to some of the different American high schools. I think they've been in, oh, golly, I think they've been in Brussels, might have been in Prague. Uh, they've been in Tokyo. Um, but, again, we haven't really reached, we, we, these are, these are uh, American expat, uh, you know, expatriates and the children of diplomats and, and corporate executives, what we'd love to do is find a way to reach into the actual schools and the programs, because I'm sure there's bullying. Yeah. And oh, it's going and on so much, and it's just like even animals do it to each other. So it, it's happening, and it's so bad for some people who have this happen in their lives. It, will it is. I mean, some ruin their up, lives forever. They wind up committing suicide because they, yes, so, they do. They don't, they so, don't feel so, so trapped. No, that's uh, incredible that you can do this. And is it financed by anyone? I mean, it, it cannot only be volunteers. No, the uh, the organization is what in the in the states. I'm sure you're familiar with nonprofits. So it's oh, a nonprofit, yes, it's a nonprofit organization, and they do <laughs> yes. and they do a lot of fundraising, and they do charge the schools. Um, it averages about thirty dollars per student per day, mm-hmm. so it's not a lot of money per student. They really try to keep their fees down as much yeah. as possible. But they yeah. do, again, they do fundraising. They get uh, some corporate sponsors and uh, individuals who believe in the program donate money. And uh, 
We've had some really amazing, we've got some amazing things going on. The Denver, Colorado School District has decided that they want to try to get every freshman, there's that's thousands of kids in Denver, every freshman in high school in the Denver School District to go through a challenge day. So they just did a big fundraiser in Denver and raised a half a million dollars. So, uh, so no, that's good. That's wonderful. So, um, no, I'm very involved with charities myself. I gave 20 years of my life to charities. Uh-huh, and that is a wonderful course. I speak with a Swedish, with a Swedish accent. I'm Swedish, but I live in the United States. And uh, what is so wonderful about the United States is that you do charities. We do charities in America. Right. And everyone is kind of ent- part of that also. In Europe, you're not so uh, generous with your time in the same way. Uh, maybe because we've had many wars, and we've had tough times, and we had to to survive, and we didn't have time with charities in the same way. Sure. Uh, now, if people, Steve, want to get hold of your book, Drunk with Wonders, Awakening to the God Within, they want to get hold of it, where can they find it? Well, of course, I'm, uh, I have a website, which is www.drunkwithwonder, all is one word, just drunkwithwonder.com, and you can order it there uh, 24-7 online, or people can even call a toll-free number I have. It's 800-247-6553. That's 800-247-6553 to order with a credit card. I also have it available on Amazon.com. I also have an audio version of the book available on Audible.com or on iTunes did a great job. We've had a lot of great comments about that. And if people are interested in uh, this kind of work, this kind of uh, conversation, I have a free monthly newsletter that I put out and just sign up on the homepage of my website. Very good. And I understand if people have questions about uh, anything they have read in your book, they can get back with you too, can't they? Yeah, I'm very open to talking about these things with people. I want to I really want to be the change myself, so I'm I'm very open to supporting people in uh, taking charge of their own lives and, and yeah. so on. So to to sum it all up, how what what does it take to get away from drugs and being homeless to being a success in life? Intention. It takes it takes a desire to do so. It takes a desire to do it different. You know, I think. Uh, for people who are really somehow still getting some kind of a payoff for living the lifestyle that they do, uh, there really isn't much that anything, any, anything anyone can do. I think that's why when people get caught with illegal drugs and they get put in prison, even if they get put in a rehab program, I mean, you see this revolving door of celebrities, for example, who get caught yes. mm-hmm. for something, they get put in rehab, Two months later, they're caught and put in rehab again, and then they're put in rehab again. And, yes. and you know, what's missing is, is a connection with their, I believe, anyhow, what's missing is a connection with their own soul, with a connection, with a belief that they're really worth taking care of themselves. Yes, and also they don't have that anchor within them, and uh, they don't really know why they are here. They realize they made the money, they made the fame, now so what? What else is there? Yes, because as long the as that, that's what everybody finally learns, I think, that no matter how famous you are, no matter how much money you have, it's never enough if we don't feel that we're enough from the inside out. Yeah. So the purpose of life, what do you feel that is, Steve? I feel that the purpose of life is to live, to experience every moment of this precious experience, that every breath as sacred. I believe that when we do that, when we're fully present and we're experiencing gratitude and appreciation for our lives. Yes, that's very that, true. To be grateful. That's, the ultimate, that's, <laughs> that's important. That's, kind of the act of, that's an act of worship right there. Yes. Is, is this sense of the sacred in the world. So people say, well, how can living life be the purpose? I, well, how can it not be? I mean, we, we have stories. Sure. I mean, we have stories that we make up or that our culture makes up. Mostly, those stories have to do with how we're not good enough by ourselves, so we have to buy the right car, 
or the right dress or wear the right perfume or live in the right place in order to be good enough. But what if we were good enough? What if we were born good enough? What if, what if the divine spark that beats all of our hearts was more than enough? What if it was our birthright to live a passion-filled life, drunk with wonder? Yeah, that's right. So why do you feel you came to this earth, Steve? Is that a complicated question? Not at Have all. Have you thought about that? Not a great deal. <laughs> I mean, because I was so many times when it would have been so easy for me to not be on the planet. Mm-hmm. And especially now that I'm seven and a half years without alcohol, uh, you know what? Why did I come to Earth? Uh, I think it's one of the most profound questions anyone ever wrestles with. And what came to me as clear as a bell is that I came here to love. I came here to be the love I am, and so I'm always looking for opportunities to share the love that keeps pouring out of my heart and you know there's no shortage of love there is none at all there's an infinite supply the more opportunities i have to give love and be love and and give the love away give it away the more pours out of my heart in a never-ending fountain and so when i'm able to go into a high school and uh, be a small group leader and support these young people in having what they often say is the most amazing day of their lives, I feel completely fulfilled because I'm being the love I am. I had a young woman last week in one of my small groups. She's been living in the United States for four years. Her family comes from Mexico. And she's learned English incredibly well in four years. And it's beautiful the way she speaks. But she was being made fun of for the way she speaks. So I turned it around and said, you sound like Penelope Cruz. You sound like an actress. You sound beautiful. And her face just lit up. And at the end of the day, when we were giving appreciations to each other, she told me that she had never in her entire life, and she's 15, had never in her entire life met an adult human being that got her and appreciated her just for the way she was. She didn't even know people like me even existed. And that's wonderful. that's just that's my fulfillment right there. Yeah. Yes. To spread out a little bit of goodness around you, of course. What kind of people do you admire in this world? What leaders do you feel are good leaders, for instance? What do you feel is a good characteristic of a leader? What do we need in a leader? I feel very strongly that leaders need to lead by example, by walking their talk. I'm I'm so familiar with people, uh, so-called leaders who, <coughs> excuse me, who teach one thing and then act a very different way. Oh, you see it all the time. Yes. I see it all the time. So, for example, uh, Rich and Yvonne Dutra St. John, the founders of Challenge Day. Uh, as I say, I've known them for 13 and a half years, and I've I, I know them well and spent a lot of time with them and. I don't know anybody who walks their talk and does their best to live what they teach. And that they're my heroes. I have other heroes as well, of course. Uh, people like Mother Teresa had touched my heart deeply, her willingness uh, to work in the slums like that. And, yeah. of course, Dr. King. And, of course, uh, John Kennedy. And, uh, you know, people who have been able to come back from great adversity. adversity. Yeah, but what people, did you like about John Kennedy? What fascinated well, when I was a, you about him? When I was a boy, uh, and I was 13 when he was assassinated, I, I remember it very clearly. He, I, it's very much like my experience of Barack Obama. Uh, mm-hmm. He engenders a sense of hope and optimism and possibility uh, in me. And the last time I really felt like that, I'm speaking of Barack now, and the last time I really felt like that was in 1968 with Robert Kennedy, when he uh-huh. was uh, he had just been you know won the California uh, uh, primary the night yeah. that he was assassinated, and mm-hmm. I was thinking we were going to take you know take this country back from, and I'll use a very judgmental word, from the warmongers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know what we, you're saying. And then we didn't. And so here we are in this country faced again with this stark choice between 
another warmonger and someone who is promoting peace and uh, and conversation rather than confrontation. Yeah. And um, I'm, you know, I'm. There's a part of me that's very concerned that once again, as a country, we're just going to roll over in the face of fear and make another catastrophic choice for a leader. And my prayer is that we don't. My prayer is that we wake up, that there are enough of us in the country who will actually get up off our rear ends and vote for change. So in other words, what do you feel is missing in our society today? Compassion. I, I really feel that there's a lack of compassion and a lack of perspective. You know, that's really the biggest word is perspective. We we see things through such a narrow lens. Yes, we, we do. We can, you know, it, it's you know, we we lose a few thousand people, and every one of those losses is tragic. I I, I don't mean to dismiss it in any way. You're talking but about to, the war. To, well, I'm talking about you know 9/11. Yes. Oh, we yeah. lost. We lost tragically. Lost in a very public way. Some wonderful people. But to then go back and pound a country into the Stone Age and slaughter tens of thousands of, of absolutely innocent people uh, because of our own fear is, is something that compounds the tragedy. It doesn't ease it. It doesn't make us more secure as a country. It makes it, We're just creating more and more people who lose. And I think that's really, really sad. It's very sad uh, what is happening in the world. Of course, I feel that spirituality is growing and and the power of the light of spirit is so-called growing. But I also feel that, uh, on the other hand, that the the dark side is growing too, maybe as some kind of contrast. What do you feel about that? As one side is growing, the other one is as well? Well, as long as one... I mean... When we look at the other side, for example, we often find people who feel desperate and see, you know, the good guys and the bad guys are always at each other's throats, right? That's what we've all been taught, the good guys and the bad guys. So it really depends on where you stand, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Yeah. You know, it's easy enough to It's, make... it's always so. It depends where you stand or what side. Basically, everyone probably believes they're doing right, don't they? From their own, from their own, from their own standpoint, yes, so, they believe you know, they're right. I, I am at a loss as to truly, as to understand the heart of someone who feels that it's acceptable behavior to strap on a bunch of explosives and walk into a crowd and detonate it. Yes, uh, that's I, I, unbelievable. And yet, but for I them, maybe they have been programmed and told now you go to heaven and you're doing yes and there's and and i'm very sure that there is a sense of desperation you know of unemployment of poverty of not seeing any future that supports them having a family and having a life yes so they end it right there i mean we talked i spoke a little bit earlier about people who pop their emotional balloons by suicide and that's a really spectacular way of doing that. But, I mean, you know, if you think about it, what's really the difference between somebody who straps on explosives and detonates it in a crowd and a couple of kids who've been bullied and harassed and teased and beaten up who walk onto a school campus one day and hunt down all the people who tease them and shoot them? Yeah. What I mean, in, fundamentally, from an energetic standpoint, I see very little difference between the two. This is this is true, you know, and that is why we have all these problems because we have been conditioned from all over, and then there are people from the outside who say this is wrong. But when you're in it, you don't understand it. You don't see it. It's like when it, you're being you're boiling in, in 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 the water. You don't know who you are, or if you're in the water, you don't know anything well, that's, yeah, else. Yeah, that's that's kind of one of the stories that uh, our Challenge Day founders founders like to tell. They talk about if you take a a little pot of boiling water and you toss a frog in it, the frog will jump right out. But of if you put a frog into room temperature water and turn the heat on very slowly, 
the frog will not jump out. It no, it doesn't know. It doesn't understand. It doesn't notice. So that's what that's the reason why I made a stand for my life to choose to work with Challenge Day and this whole idea of giving young people an opportunity to see how they can do it different mm-hmm. is that if we don't do that, I think we're just doomed uh, as a world to keep perpetuating these feuds. I mean, the, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, what they call themselves now, but 3,000 years ago, their families were still at each other's throats. Yeah. You, know, the, the northern, you know, the northern Irish... The Catholics and the Protestants, those families were fighting each other 3,000 years ago. Uh, So it's it's that sense of letting go of this this identity. You know, it's like, how do I put this? It's like, I'm this. I'm I'm an Israeli, therefore I am. And not only that, but I'm an Israeli who hates Palestinians, therefore I am. And and then then there's the other side of that, and we're like you know a couple of hamsters spinning around in a wheel, until somebody stands up and says, you know what, I'm letting go of my identity as someone who hates someone else. You know, I'm 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 no longer going to say I'm wounded, therefore I am, and hold on to that wound with everything I've got, and pass that wound on to my kids. I mean, I I read stories about different parts of the world where there are different ethnic rivalries and there might have the last time there might have been an open bloody confrontation between two groups might have been a hundred years ago but if you go into those areas now they're still as angry with each other their grandchildren and great-grandchildren are as angry with each other and they don't know the reason for it and And there are many many areas in the world where we have these conditions yeah, what happens after what happened after Czechoslovakia uh, fell apart, and you know they were they were these rivalries, these these animosities had been simmering under the surface because nobody had ever tried to heal them or ever worked at moving beyond those kinds of very tribal identities. And if we're going to survive as a planetary culture, we've simply got to respect and appreciate and honor and celebrate our differences but not use them to beat each other up with. That's absolutely so. We should celebrate and understand each other's differences. And I think love is synonymous actually with understanding also and accepting each other for what we are. I agree. Do you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We have come towards the hour, to the end of the hour here, and we'll probably go a little bit into the streaming. So... um, which is okay, so we don't have to cut it off so quickly <laughs> because we only have one minute left about of the show, and I would like you to announce again how do people get re- hold of you, where do we find you again, and okay. your book, where do we find your book again, Drunk with Wonder? Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Um, you can go to my website, which is www.drunkwithwonder. Dot com, just d r u n k w i t h w o n d e r drunkwithwonder.com, and order my book there with a credit card. You can also uh, call 800-247-6553. That's 800-247-6553, uh, 24 hours a day, and use your credit card to place an order for the book, one or more. Uh, and you can also go to Amazon.com to order a book. I also have a free monthly newsletter. If you'd like to sign up, just give me your email. I never hand it out to anybody else. And you can do that off of my uh, homepage of Drunk with Wonder. And I have a great audio version of the entire book. It's not abridged. Uh, and if that's available on iTunes or on Audible.com. That sounds that's pretty good. Much it. That's very good. So um, I would like to thank you so very much for being with us today, Steve. It was very informative. It was very good. You have a great philosophy how to live life and how to look at life as a whole. Thank you. And you do lots of good things for us all. (laughs) Well, thank you. um, Thank you so much for being with me today. 
And uh, I would like to also thank Sedona Talk Radio for giving me this time and this opportunity to show the rest of the world all these many wonderful guests we have had. So uh, thank you, Steve, for being with me. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Thank you so much. And I will play a little song at the end by my previous guest, who was here with me a week ago, and I would play uh, by Eddie Benitez, Beautiful Sunrise, which I feel will fit in with today. So thank you so much, Steve Riles, and here we have the song by Eddie Benitez, Fly, we talk, take Beautiful Sunrise. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
thank you again uh, for the show, Steve Riles. This is Helena Steiner-Hornstein calling you from Stockholm, Sweden, and I will be back with you next Tuesday. Thank you so much. Goodbye.